turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter, um, had a blank, Luke chapter 6, thank you. Um, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 6, and while you're finding your place, let me say a few words of introduction. Last week, I made some comments for which um, I have to blame myself, and maybe parents are blaming me because I encouraged children to ask their parents why. And then I regretted it when my daughter came to me and began playing the why game and asking me why, 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 why. And yet, I do want to encourage them to ask why and to wonder why, and I want to encourage you all to do the same thing. You see, at some point in their lives, children do begin to wonder why things are the way they are, and it's natural for them to ask the people they know to have all the answers, their parents. Eventually, parents will get exasperated with that constant barrage of questions, and they'll respond, because it is, or because I said so, which isn't really the answer at all. And yet, it's usually an acknowledgement that they lack the explanation or the patience that is necessary to answer the question. And sometimes, children need to be content with that answer. Nevertheless, As parents, we should want our children to live their lives with a sense of holy wonder, a sanctified curiosity. I'm not advocating the kind of curiosity that seeks to satisfy every sinful desire. I'm rather advocating the kind of curiosity that wonders at God and His good purposes and seeks to understand them. It's the kind of curiosity that we see in Ezra. Ezra 7.10 tells us that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules to Israel. Ezra wanted to understand. He wanted to know God's word so that he could teach others. And God blessed him by giving him understanding. And I am sure that if we set our hearts in the same way to study God's word and to understand it, he will bless us similarly. Now, I want to apply this idea to something we find in the text. As we read through Luke chapter 6, these first 11 verses, we're going to see a controversy arise, and it surrounds the issue of the Sabbath. And we're going to understand that controversy and the problem by recognizing the Pharisees knew what was required by the Sabbath, and they went beyond it, but they failed to understand the why of the Sabbath. They did not understand why God gave his people this good gift. But as we understand the why, we're going to be able to understand what Jesus is doing and saying here in this text. So if you found your place, would you follow along with me in verse 1 as I read to verse 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, He entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Father in heaven, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would inspire in us that holy curiosity that seeks to understand. And that as you do this, Lord, that you would also satisfy our curiosity by showing us from your word your goodness and your grace that you have shown us in Christ. Help us to see the rest that you offer us in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's not just one reason why God gave Israel the Sabbath. There are a few that I want to highlight this morning. It's made very plain in the Old Testament. You can begin by turning, if you like, to Exodus 16, or if you'd rather, you can listen to me as I read from this text. But I want to set out several of the reasons why God gave Israel a Sabbath day rest. On the seventh day of every week, God commanded the people of Israel to rest from all their labors. And he first gave this command to them in Exodus 16. There, God was about to give them bread from heaven. He was about to miraculously rain bread upon them so that he might feed them while they were in the wilderness as as they had just left Egypt in the Exodus, and they needed food in that desolate place. And God said this to Moses in verse 4 and 5, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So God gave the Sabbath to Israel as a test. But it was a test that worked in two directions, Exodus 16 would show us. You see, on the one hand, God was testing His people to see if they would keep His commandments. And this required them to live by faith. Think about the Sabbath command, what God was telling them to do. He was saying, one day every week, don't work. And I will provide for you enough for that day. And they needed to trust God that he would, in fact, provide for them. As part of uh, these instructions, he gave them more instructions, saying that they're not to overgather on the first five days of the week. They're only to gather what they need for that particular day and wait for the next day. As, again, a way of testing them and calling them to trust that he would indeed provide for them. Some of them listened. Some of them failed to listen. But all of it was a test to see if they would walk by faith as they kept the commandments that he gave them. But it was also a test that God used to prove himself. You see, that word testing can refer to a proof. We might test metal to see its value. We might test a child with an examination to see that she's learned her mathematics. God tells us not to put him to the test, but sometimes God graciously proves himself, sets forward a test of himself, if you will. 
whereby he shows that he can be trusted, that he indeed is faithful to do the things that he has promised. And the Sabbath was a way for God to show Israel that indeed he was going to do for them all that he had promised. He was going to provide for their every need. And so it was a reminder to them. It was a test for them, and it was a proof of his own faithfulness. The Sabbath was also given as a reminder as a remembrance. And you can see that if you flip over a little bit to Exodus chapter 20. There in the midst of the Ten Commandments, God gave the fourth commandment, the Sabbath command, telling the people to refrain from every sort of labor on that particular day, the seventh of the week. But he also gave them the reason in verse 11 in Exodus 20. Here it is. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Thus, after giving the Sabbath command, Moses showed the people that they were to keep the Sabbath as a remembrance of God's creation work. But it helps to know a little bit about what's going on in creation. God's not resting on the seventh day because he's tired. God is resting as a matter of revelation. If you look in Genesis 1, you read the course of those six days of creation. Every single day ends with the same refrain. There was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. There was evening and there was morning the third day. And on and on until you come to Genesis 2, 1 through 3. You don't see it. It reads like this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The sun set and rose on another day for Adam and Eve. For Adam and Eve, there was an eighth day. But God showed in that moment that the rest that he entered was an everlasting rest. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 will make that very point, citing this text. There is no evening and morning in that text as a way of communicating that God's rest came with an invitation. It was an everlasting rest. And His people were to come into that rest by faith. So God gave the people of Israel the Sabbath as a weekly reminder of the rest that still remained for them, that promised, final, salvation rest that God would grant them in eternity. God created the world that his people might enter into the rest of his fellowship. But he also saved his people so that they might enter into his rest. And so when Moses gave the Ten Commandments a second time to a new generation in Israel, in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 6.15, when he gave the Sabbath command again, he gave another reason, another reminder. He said, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Israel was to keep the Sabbath to remember creation, but they were also to keep the Sabbath to remember that God saved them from slavery in Egypt in order to grant them rest in the promised land. But they were also to look forward and see that that rest was not the final rest. It wasn't the completion of God's promises. It was just the foretaste of the final rest that they would need. That's why God gave the Sabbath. That's what He would have His people understand. 
He did not give it to them to make their lives miserable, to make it really difficult. A lot of work on, on Friday evening so that you can get ready for Saturday to do no work that particular day. His purpose was not that the Sabbath, that the, his people would have to work really hard in order to rest on the Sabbath. His purpose was to give them it as a delight, as a joy that would be a foretaste of that final rest that they would eventually receive. And so finally, by the prophet Isaiah, God spoke to his people, and he said, Blessed is the man who keeps the Sabbath in Isaiah 56 too. And he promised that the one who calls the Sabbath a delight in Isaiah 58 would ultimately find his joy in the Lord. He wanted to understand the reason for the, his people to understand the reason for the command and take delight in the goodness of his provision. As we come to Luke 6, we see that the Pharisees had not learned that lesson. They had turned the Sabbath commandment into a misery, into a whole lot of work. They had a lot of rules that they had piled up. And the first rule that we see in this text is this. No snacking on the Sabbath. No snacking on the Sabbath. You see, the first controversy arises as Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field of grain. As they go, the disciples pinch off heads of grain and they snack on them. For the Pharisees, this was a problem. In their mind, Jesus' disciples were harvesting the fields. So they asked, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, nothing about this is actually unlawful. They're not really harvesting their fields, nor are they stealing from their neighbor's fields. The law very clearly allowed people to pluck something from a neighbor's field as they passed it by. In Deuteronomy 23, 25, it's written, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. If they were to take a sickle and harvest the field, they would be stealing. If they were to take a sickle and harvest the field on that day, they would also be breaking the Sabbath command. But they weren't doing that. There were no sickles in their hands. They were not harvesting. They were not working. They weren't stealing either. They were snacking. A perfectly reasonable and normal thing for people to do when they're resting. If you don't believe it, come to my house after the service and watch me. People snack when they're resting. And that's what his disciples were doing. But the Pharisees had built up all of these laws, these rules that they added onto the law to keep people from, uh, from, from doing something they might regard as work on the Sabbath. If you go to Israel today, you'll see similar things. You step into an elevator. The elevator buttons don't work on a Saturday. It just stops at every floor. It keeps going. So you don't have to press a button and work. As if to say that if someone were to, say, walk to a vending machine and put a quarter in the slot, they'd be doing work, and that would be prohibited. That's the kind of rules that the Pharisees had built up. It's not found anywhere, not found anywhere in God's law. But the Pharisees had come to believe that this is what was required in order to keep the Sabbath, and they wanted to know why Jesus' disciples were not doing. The thing is, Jesus didn't give any of the arguments I just gave. He didn't argue with them and say, you know, it's not really work. You guys are you're picking nits. You're, you're being a bit 
focus, too focused on the minutiae. Jesus doesn't say that. He could have. And they would have had a nice little debate that would be very intellectually, intellectually stimulating. And the Pharisees might have gone home and said, that Jesus is rather wrong-headed, but it was a lovely Sabbath conversation, wouldn't you say? No, Jesus doesn't do that. He asserts something bolder. He says something stronger to them. Have you not read? In other words, don't you actually know your Bibles? Haven't you actually read what the Scripture says? There, what he's going to say as he looks to 1 Samuel 21, is he's going to cite the example of David. And let me briefly just set the context for you so you understand what happened in that particular passage. Saul was the king of Israel, but David had been anointed to replace him as king, and Saul hated David, and Saul wanted to kill David, and so David was running for his life. And David and his men came to the tabernacle, and they were hungry, and they were running for their lives, and they needed food, and so he asked the priest, do you have any bread here? The priest said, I only have the bread that the priests can eat, the show bread, the bread of the presence that God commanded us every week to bake 12 loaves and put it in the temple. And then only the priests could eat it when it was replaced at the end of the week. That was God's commandment in Leviticus 24. But David told the priest that the men have kept themselves holy and our journey is not common. He used the language of cleanness and uncleanness and commonness and holiness. That is a holy journey that we are on. So he told the priest to give him the bread, and the priest obliged him and gave him the bread. And Jesus cites this example. He says, haven't you read that David and those with him, they ate that bread that's not lawful for any but the priests to eat? Haven't you read that? Haven't you thought about that? Haven't you understood that? And we're all scratching our heads saying, I don't get it. I don't understand what Jesus is saying here, his reasoning. Now remember what I said earlier about wonder. Sometimes we find confusing things in the Bible, but God has put them all in his word for a reason. They're all there to teach us. They're all there to instruct us, to encourage us. Sometimes it takes a lot of thought and study to understand God wants us to wonder. He wants us to meditate on His Word. He wants us to think. He wants us to pray. He wants us to read it together and study it and to ask questions and learn and understand, all with humility. When you find these difficult passages, do not despair. But don't give up trying to understand them. Don't lose your sense of wonder. Jesus didn't. Pharisees did. You see, this is a complicated argument. And interpreters still aren't entirely sure how to understand it. It's not something that one would expect an average person to pick out. But the Pharisees are not your average people. They're supposed to be the ones who are the teachers of Israel. They're supposed to understand God's Word. They're supposed to be able to explain it and apply it. And they should have looked at that example from David's life and thought about it and considered what God was teaching them through that. And then they should have looked at Jesus and evaluated him based on what they understood from 1 Samuel 21. In any case, let me give you my best effort to try to make sense of what's going on here. We need to look at the comparison. We've got a comparison between David and Jesus, both of whom have disciples, both of whom have men, whom they authorize to do something. And 
We have that something that they authorized their men to do. In the case of David, he authorized his men to eat the bread of the presence that was only for the priests. But David understood that in this special circumstance, in this special situation, it was authorized, it was acceptable for he and his men to eat that bread so that they would not starve on the way. In other words, David is lesser than Christ. He did something that was a greater infraction, would have been a greater infraction in the sight of the Pharisees. And yet the priest permitted it, and David authorized it. He was not found guilty for that. It was permissible in that case. And here, Jesus is greater than David, and his disciples are doing something that's not even in any way possible to be construed as a violation of the Sabbath command. But the Pharisees are finding fault. They're accusing him of letting his disciples do that which is not lawful. And he says, haven't you read? Then he asserts something about whom he is. I am the Son of Man, Jesus says. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. David did what he did, and I'm greater than him. If my disciples are plucking heads of grain on this day as they walk through the fields, and I'm not stopping them, then you need to understand, Jesus says to the Pharisees, that it's not wrong. It's not unlawful. Because you need to understand who I am, Jesus says. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. They didn't understand. They didn't receive that message, as we see in the very next passage. Another week or weeks pass by, another Sabbath rolls around, and Jesus does what he does so often on the Sabbath. He goes into the synagogue, and he's teaching there. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. That is, his hand was paralyzed. He he couldn't move it. There's a man in need in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and Jesus comes into it, and the Pharisees are there too with the scribes, and they're watching him. They're watching him to see if he will heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him, so that they might find fault with him. But Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. Before he did anything, as he often did, like when he healed the paralytic, he made it an object lesson. He asked them a question, gave them an opportunity to learn the lesson they needed to learn. You tell me what's lawful to do. I ask you, he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? What's the answer? It's obvious. This is not a complicated one. What we saw in the previous part of this passage was complicated. This is straightforward. This is easy. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? The answer is always the first. It's lawful to do good. It's not lawful to do harm on the Sabbath. And the irony is that the Pharisees and the scribes are the ones who are seeking to do harm on this Sabbath. They've made the Sabbath their day to gather and to conspire and to find fault with the Lord of the Sabbath. They've made it a day for them to seek His destruction. They've made it a day to do harm. And they're going to use a man who's in a pitiful state, a man who's in need, as their instrument by which they find fault with the Lord of glory. 
Who's in violation of the Sabbath on this day? It is surely the Pharisees and the scribes who have settled in their hearts to do harm on this Sabbath. Jesus looks around at them all. They would not answer to him. Mark tells us, as he recounts this, this uh, passage, he tells us that when Jesus looked around at them, he looked with anger and he grieved at their hardness of heart. It grieved him in his spirit, Mark tells us, to see their response, to see how hard-hearted they could be in refusing to hear and to believe and to understand what Jesus was saying. This is such a bitter hardness. It is such a sobering and distressing picture. But this is what unbelief looks like in a hard and self-righteous heart. It will not listen to reason. It will not repent when rebuked by God's word. It refuses to hear and refuses to believe. And even when Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand, and his hand is restored whole, and Jesus heals them, they will not believe. Or you see what they do? At the end of verse 10 and in verse 11, they were filled with fury. That word could be madness. They lost their collective minds. They became like lunatics, and they went out of that place and settled it in their hearts that they would seek by whatever means possible to destroy Jesus. They discussed with one another what they might do to him. From that very early moment, they rejected him because of their unbelief. It was unreasonable. It was absurd. It was the action of a lunatic. And yet, this is what unbelief looks like. It's a sad thing to behold. They would crucify the Lord of glory ultimately because of his disciples, because his disciples ate some seeds, and he had mercy on a man in need. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what happens when we lose our wonder and we let rituals and commandments become an end in themselves. Again, this is what happens when we put our trust in ourselves and forget the one who came for us and died for us. This is what happened to the Pharisees. They became hardened in their unbelief, filled with utter madness, because they made the commandments the end in themselves. They failed to understand the purpose for which the Sabbath was given. And so, when God sent the one through whom they might receive that final rest, They said, no, thank you. We don't want that rest. We'd rather have our weekly Sabbath. That's what the Pharisees did because they made the commandments, the end, not a means by which they might come in faith to Christ. Now, in our context, we are confronted with this question. We want to know. Some of you may be thinking in your own minds and in your hearts, does God still require me to keep the Sabbath? Does he require me to rest on Saturday or on Sunday? You see, Israel kept the Sabbath on the seventh day, which is Saturday. The early church, however, gathered on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, the day of Christ's resurrection. That's the pattern they model for us in the book of Acts. We see from the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, gathering on the Lord's Day. So what are we to make of it? Do we rest on Saturday and gather on Sunday? Do we not do away with Saturday altogether? Do we have to rest on Sunday or only gather? So 
few days, just two, and yet so many options. It's bewildering. It's enough to make your head spin. Let me simply answer this by talking about why we do what we do on Sunday. Why do we gather here? Why do we come together? What is the purpose of it all? You see, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.25 told this church, these Christians to whom he was writing, not to neglect to gather together, as is the habit of some. But he didn't just say that. He gave them the reason. If we read the whole context there in verse 24 and 25, he says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Israel remembered the Sabbath as a reminder that God would one day bring them into a final and everlasting rest. We gather every Sunday in order to encourage one another to love and good works in view of the day. And that day is the day of Christ's coming, the day when we will finally and fully enter into the rest of our Lord. That's why we do what we do in view of that day with a capital D when Christ brings us into His kingdom. It's the day when our salvation comes in its fullness. We gather every week in order to encourage one another as we wait for that day. Beyond this, I put no burden on your conscience. I only say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 14, verse 5, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Settle in your own mind how you are to regard this day whether it's a day to refrain from all outside activities or it's simply a day to gather and worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul told these early Christians in Rome to settle it in their minds, to be fully convinced in their own minds. But again, he gave a reason. He gave a purpose for that instruction. He said, he goes on to say in verse 6 through 9 of that chapter, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. The reason Paul told the people to simply be convinced in their own mind concerning whether or not some days were greater than others or all days were to be treated alike was because Paul understood that there was something more important than winning an argument. <clears throat> there was something more important than being right and being seen to be right. Paul could have clearly given us his opinion on the matter and settled it for all time, but he did not. Instead, he showed the people that what mattered more was that they lived their lives together in love. You see, if I tell some of you who've made it your habit for all your life to refrain from all outside activities on this day, but you do it to glorify God, and I tell you you don't have to do that anymore, woe unto me for depriving you of a means by which you bring glory to your Maker. But if it's merely your habit that you gather regularly in the presence of other believers 
And afterward, perhaps you go out and enjoy a meal or you mow the lawn. And you enjoy your freedom, but you do that and to the Lord and to glorify God. I place no further burden on your conscience. Well, the Apostle Paul didn't. God's word, I do not believe, does. Paul was one of the smartest men who ever lived. He understood God's word perhaps better than anyone who ever lived except Jesus. On this matter, however, Paul knew that this was more important, that we should love one another and encourage one another to love and good works so that we might glorify our maker. However, God has burdened our consciences to glorify him. Then do that, brothers and sisters in Christ. But don't use it as an occasion like the Pharisees to be a fault finder with your brothers and sisters in Christ. To point the finger in their faces and show them how wrong they are and how right you are. That's not the purpose of the Sabbath. That we might go around and find fault with everyone and everything except ourselves. So let it be settled in your mind how it is that you will glorify God on this day. But at the very least... I invite you to make it, encourage you to make it your regular habit that you gather in the company of other believers in so much as you are able physically in time or with the requirements that are placed upon you because of your state in life. Make it your regular habit in so much as God gives you ability to gather with his people regularly, week by week, that you might be encouraged and you might encourage others. And understand this. All of this leads us to Christ. All of this is meant to bring us to the one who presented himself as the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who later would say, as recorded in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 11, 28, and 30, would give this invitation saying, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he says. Those who reject this offer and choose instead to find their rest in their own works, in their own practice of religion, whatever it might be, they will not have rest in eternity. Revelation 14.11 describes the fate of those who reject Christ in the tribulation in words that I think we can borrow here. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. For they rejected the rest that comes through Christ. Don't reject that rest. Don't reject that invitation. The whole point of the Sabbath rest that God gave his people was to bring them to Christ so that when he came offering that final rest, that rest that will last forever, they might see that he was the one who ultimately could bring him not rest that they could enjoy once a week for the rest of their life, but rest that they could enjoy in God's presence forever and ever. Let us not be like those Pharisees. Let us never be those who trust in ourselves rather than Christ. Let us never be those who seek our rest in what we do. Let us always be those who delight in knowing Christ and rest graciously, rest in his gracious offer, he has given us through himself. Let me explain this purpose with a word, phrase borrowed from John Piper. Let us do this so that God may be most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in him. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, you are a gracious Lord, the one Lord of all the universe who has graciously given us rest through your Son, Jesus Christ. May we not be those who reject this offer. May we be those who understand and receive this offer because we understand that all of the things that you gave your people throughout the course of history were meant to finally bring us to him, to point us to him, that we might receive this gospel by faith in him. We thank you, Lord, for the rest that you offer us. May we be those who receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now we're going to participate in our own sign of remembrance. Let me say a few words about it. Just as God gave his people, Israel, a Sabbath by which they might remember their hope, our Lord Jesus Christ gave us this meal as a sign by which we might remember what he did for us and how he brings us the rest that he offers. His body was broken for our sake on the cross. His blood was shed for our sake that our sins might be paid for so that all who receive him by faith can have that rest that he promises. This is a sign of that, a token of remembrance by which we remind one another of what Christ has done for us. So, let me say something about who this meal is for. If you are a believer in Christ, trusting in the finished work that He accomplished for you on the cross, you come to Him repentant of your sin, then this meal is for you. If you have not yet been baptized as a believer, I do ask you to let the cup and the plate pass you by. Not because I'm saying that you're not a believer, but we want to put things in their right order as we see it modeled in Scripture. It's not because we want to be cruel. It's because we want to follow God's Word. And so we ask you to let, let it pass if those things don't describe you. And if you are a believer in Christ but you've not been baptized, I do ask you, come and see me. Let's sit down. Let's have coffee. Let's, in obedience to Christ, make that happen. But if you are a baptized believer who's trusting in Christ and is repenting of your sin, then come to this meal with joy and receive the bread and receive the cup with joy and with faith and with thankfulness to the Lord who provides for all your needs in himself. So as the men come forward, I'll invite them to pray for the bread. And then what you'll hear is, uh, you'll hear uh, music playing as it's passed out. Hold on to the bread and hold on to the cup after you've received it. And then we'll take it together and use that time to reflect and to pray and to thank the Lord and to repent of your sin.